Thanks, Richard. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. A couple of things to keep in mind, bear in mind as we study 1 Samuel. Uh, The first is this, it's context. What is the context for this book? Uh, Very helpful in determining the context when we go back to the Jewish scriptures. uh, We discover that the books in the Jewish scriptures are the same books we have in our Old Testament, but in the Jewish scriptures, the order is different. And you do not find the book of Ruth between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth is elsewhere. That's significant because the very last verse in the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Immediately, we turn to 1 Samuel. And what do we discover in 1 Samuel? That God is raising up his king, David. And that David will point to the king of kings, the coming anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important context. Also important to bear in mind the theme of uh, of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, The theme is found really in Hannah's song in the second chapter. And interestingly enough, at one time in the Jewish scriptures, First and Second Samuel were not separate books. They were one book. And so as you read this one book, right at the outset, the second chapter, you had Hannah's song. And right at the end of this one book, you had David's song, which is found in our Bibles in Second Samuel chapters 22 and 23. But at one time, one book, beginning with Hannah's song, ending with David's song, celebrating both the majesty of God and his sovereign rule over the affairs of men. And that, in between these two songs in First and Second Samuel, is what we have unfolding for us. God raising up his king, and that king ultimately pointing to, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. So very important to keep these features in mind. Also important to bear in mind that there are three central characters in First and Second Samuel. Samuel himself, then Saul, Israel's first king, and then David, God's king. And we're focusing on these Sundays on the life of Samuel, basically the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. And today we find ourselves in the fifth chapter. And so I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And so in chapter 4, there's been a battle. The Philistines have defeated the Israelites on the battlefield. They have captured the Ark of God. They have taken it back as the spoils of war to Ashdod, verse 2. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors 
both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's begin by asking a pretty obvious question. It's this. uh, What's going on here? For that matter, put it in the context of chapter 4. We looked at chapter 4 last Lord's Day into chapter 5 today. What's happening? Or let me rephrase it. What is God doing? Two things. First is this. God is acting. Or if you like, God is working for the honor of his name among the Israelites. How? As we'll see in a couple of chapters, God is going to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, their enemies, their oppressors. He's going to bring about a great deliverance. Before he brings about this great deliverance, he's going to bring the Israelites to repentance. They have succumbed to superstition. They have succumbed to idolatry. They must repent, turn from their idols, turn to the one true living God before God will deliver them. How is he going to bring about this repentance? He's going to do so through this man, this prophet, whom he has raised up, Samuel. But here's the problem. The people are not ready to receive the prophetic word. And so God, before he can deliver them, Before he brings them to repentance through Samuel's preaching, he must get the Israelites' attention. That's what we have in chapter 4. And God gets their attention how? Firstly, they suffer a terrible defeat. A terrible defeat on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistines. And secondly, at the time of that defeat, the ark of God is captured. The ark, that box overlaid with gold, covered with the mercy seat, with the two cherubim, with their wings outstretched, that ark which was placed in the most holy place, that ark over which the cloud covered and gathered, that visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord, that ark where the blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement, the Israelites carried that ark into battle thinking it would help them. It's captured. You see, God is getting their attention. What message is he sending them? Ichabod. Do you remember that at the end of the fourth chapter? The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. It departed a long time before that battle. 
But God wants to deliver them. Repentance must come first. Repentance will come through Samuel's ministry, but they are hard of hearing. They're not listening, and so he gets their attention. A terrible defeat and a terrible loss. You see, God is working for the honor of his name among the Israelites. Equally true. God is working for the honor of his name among the Philistines. The Philistines know who God is. The Philistines gathered on the eastern coast there of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they, uh, they have general revelation. They have creation. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. They willfully reject that revelation and worship and serve idols. Not only do they possess general revelation, but they have God's revelation in history. To such an extent, insofar as in the fourth chapter, when the Israelites bring the ark of God into the camp, into the midst of the battle, and the Philistines hear their excitement, hear their shout, hear their cry of joy, they tremble. Why? Because gods have come into the camp. We know who these gods are. They are the gods who plagued Egypt. Now, this is interesting. How long ago, prior to this event, had God plagued Egypt? 300 years have passed. Yet the Philistines know who is, what Israel is. The Philistines know the history of Israel. The Philistines know something of the exodus. They know something of the power of the God of Israel. But they reject that revelation. Well, God is going to work among the Philistines for the honor of his name. How? He is going to show them just how ridiculous their God is. They are going to suffer, just like Israel in the fourth chapter, a terrible defeat. A defeat which will include their idol, Dagon, prostrate on the ground before the ark with its head and hands severed. And they are going to suffer a terrible loss, a loss of life, as God afflicts them with these tumors, as God wreaks havoc among the Philistines. He is doing so for the honor of his name, to reveal to them in no uncertain terms that there is but one true living God. That's what's going on in these chapters. God is working for the honor of his name among the Israelites, and God is working for the honor of his name among the Philistines. And so it's the Philistines we're primarily concerned with this day, and in particular what transpires in chapter 5. And how I want to approach it is as follows. I want to suggest, I want to affirm that this narrative, the fifth chapter, these 12 verses, direct our attention to three glorious truths. Three glorious truths. And so we're going to work our way through each of these, see their relevance for the immediate context, God working for the honor of his name among the Philistines, and build the bridge to now, present day, and how this applies to us. And so truth number one is as follows. Uh, this passage, this narrative, directs our attention to the depth of man's depravity. And so we look at these verses, and we see ourselves. Uh, they function as a mirror, and they aid us in peering into the inner recesses of our souls, and really understanding and come to grips, coming to grips with 
what we are before a holy God. The battle has taken place. It is waged. The Philistines have gained the upper hand. They have killed 30,000 Israelite soldiers. The Israelites have scattered each to his home. The ark is captured, and now the Philistines take that ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Why? A couple of reasons. First of all, as far as they're concerned, it's a talisman. It's a giant rabbit's foot. It's a good luck charm. They're as superstitious as the day is long. And they think to themselves, well, there's something intrinsically magical, powerful about this box. We want all the help we can get, and so let's... Let's, we have our pantheon of gods. We're polytheistic. We worship all sorts of gods. Dagon being our supreme god. Well, let's take this box and, and, and we'll include it, incorporate it into our worship. We can use all the help we can get. So it's a talisman. Not only that, though, the ark, as far as they're concerned, is a trophy. It is a spoil of war. Because something happened as far as they're concerned on that battlefield. Not only had they defeated the Israelites... No, no, no. More importantly, as far as they are concerned, their God, Dagon, had defeated the God of Israel. And this box, these are the spoils of war. This is a trophy. And we're going to put it in the temple to our God, Dagon, and we're going to put it where it belongs, at the feet of our God. Well, The Philistines are about to experience a close encounter with the living God. Five stages in this encounter. And this takes us through the whole chapter. Five stages as God works among the Philistines for the honor of his name. Stage number one. We find it in verse three. And when the people of Ashdod, so that's the city we're in presently. That's where this central temple of Dagon is located. The ark is in that temple at the feet of Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod, verse 3, rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. What is God saying? At the very least, he's saying, you've made a huge mistake. A huge mistake. To ascribe to this piece of stone, that victory on the battlefield, to place the ark of the living God at its feet is an atrocity, is a monstrosity, is a huge judgment in error. And so there is Dagon, their image, lying prostrate before the ark. Now here's a central question. What do they do? They repent, right? The God of Israel, he is God. What have we done? No, far from it. Look at what we read at the end of verse 3. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That's it. That's stage number one in this close encounter. Stage number two takes us into verses 4 and 5. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. We've heard that before, but now there's something different. Read on. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon 
was left to him. The head, the seat of wisdom, the hands, the instruments of action, both severed, scattered across the floor in the temple. What is God saying? Your God is ridiculous. That is what God is saying to the Philistines. He is, he is not, only, not only does he lack knowledge or wisdom, he is inept, he is powerless, he is impotent. This is the message God is conveying to the Philistine. How do they respond? They repent and turn to worship the one true living God. No, what do we read in the next verse? Verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And so what do they do? Rather than recognizing, rather than grasping what's going on here, rather than acknowledging that their God is powerless, there he is on the ground, missing his head, missing his hands. What do they do? They worship the ground where he fell. That is how prevalent their darkness is. That is how far gone they are in their idolatry. That even when something so obvious, declaring such an obvious, clear message is there right in front of their eyes, that they're unwilling to recognize it, they're unwilling to acknowledge it, and rather than seeing their God for what he is, inept and impotent, what do they do? They actually begin to revere the ground where he fell. And that brings us to the third stage in this close encounter, verses 6 through 8. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark, notice they know what's going on. The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And so not only is the Lord against Dagon, not only twice has the Lord caused his image to fall and on the second occasion severed his head and severed his hands, but now the Lord is against us. He has afflicted us terribly with these tumors. And so what do they do? They repent and turn to the one true living God. No, verse 8. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. They send it away. That brings us to the fourth stage in this close encounter with the living God, verses 9 and 10. But after they had brought it around, now we're in the city of Gath, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And so the same thing happens in Gath that had happened in Ashdod. What is their response? It's the same. Verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And now we enter the fifth stage in this close encounter. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. You see, news has already reached Ekron. News of what has happened in Ashdod and Gath. Well, this is already common knowledge, so they cry out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away 
the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let me summarize this close encounter as follows. Rather than despising Dagon, they worship the ground he falls upon. Rather than abandoning Dagon, they get rid of the ark of the living God. Hear the words, friends. Hear the words of Isaiah 44, 21. A deluded heart has led them astray. And they cannot deliver themselves or say, Is there not a lie in our right hand? They are so spiritually blind, so spiritually darkened, that they're unable to even say, Is there not a lie in our own right hand? They cannot see the forest for the trees. It points us, does it not, to the depravity of man's heart. Now, I know Brian touched on this a little bit yesterday morning at the men's breakfast. I know, most of us know, that when we hear of things like Dagon or Baal worship, when we hear of idols, we think exclusively in terms of objects, statues made of wood, stone, perhaps something a little more precious like gold and silver. Uh, And people ascribe some sort of power to these objects, and they prostrate themselves before them and worship them. We see a lot of that in Scripture. We see a lot of that today. But that is not the essence. That is not the heart of idolatry. The heart and the essence of idolatry is simply this. It is when we ascribe to something other than God value. It is when we ascribe to something other than God power, and wisdom. It is when we esteem something greater than God. I dare say, we are no different than the Philistines. We might read this narrative and say, well, what an archaic bunch of people. Didn't they know any better? Friends, we don't know any better. Idolatry is alive and well and rampant today. I'm going to ask you three questions. I'm going to ask myself three questions. And you answer these seriously before the Lord. The first is this. What is the principle of your life? What is the principle of your life? In other words, what motivates you? What stirs you to action? Why do you do what you do? What do you love and hate? What do you desire? What do you think about? What shapes your dreams, ambitions, and priorities? What is the principle of your life? What makes you tick? Second question is this. What is the pattern of your life? Who do you want to be like? What do you aspire to be? What do you want for your children, those of us who have children? When affliction arises, where do we turn? Where do we find solace? Where do you find refuge? Who do you turn to for help? What do you turn to for escape? What is the pattern of your life? 
third question is this, what is the purpose of your life? In other words, what occupies your time? What thrills you? What excites you? In what do you find satisfaction? Now, here's the test. If our answer to those questions is anything but God, we have identified the idols of our hearts. We have identified the Dagons of our hearts. We are ascribing to something other than God value. And we are esteeming something to be far greater, far more satisfying, far more important than the living God. We are no different from the people of Isaiah's day to whom he said, a deluded heart has led them astray. And they cannot deliver themselves or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Am I not delusional as I ascribe such worth and value to things that are passing? Well, they might very well be things such as wealth, recreation, sports, and pleasure. They might very well be things such as experiences, security, notoriety, popularity. They might very well be feelings, feelings of anger and bitterness, feelings of lust, feelings of, 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 of envy, whereby these things are what consume us. These things are what drive us. These are the things that occupy our minds, our hearts, when we arise in the morning and when we go to bed in the evening. These are the things upon which we expend our energy. These are the idols of our hearts. And these demonstrate to us, do they not, the depravity of man's heart. We see it in the Philistines, and we see it in our own lives. The second truth is this, as we consider this text together. It directs our attention, yes, to the depth of man's depravity, but it also directs our attention to the height of God's majesty. The height of God's majesty. Now, that was the purpose behind a number of the songs which we sang not that long ago. Behold our God seated on his throne. Now, the emphasis in most of those songs was upon God's authority, God's majesty, God's sovereignty. It was intentional. Because it it, it coalesces so well with this text and, and the message that the Spirit of God desires to impress upon our hearts being this, as I've already worded it, the height of God's majesty, as Hannah herself expressed it, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. In her song, back in chapter 2, Hannah goes on to to celebrate this wonderful truth. And and she does so by reflecting upon what God does. And she sings about the fact that it is God who strengthens. And it is God who weakens. We see that in the Israelites, do we not? It is God who weakened them on the battlefield. It is God who will later deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. But Hannah also sings and celebrates the fact that it is God who opens the womb and closes the womb. We see that, do we not, in Hannah's own experience. For years, unable to have children. And then in answer to her prayer, God opens her womb. She gives birth to Samuel. Not only that, I think she gives birth, isn't it, to three more sons and two daughters. The Lord, it is the Lord himself, 
No one besides the Lord who opens and closes the womb. And she sings about the fact that it is God who gives life. And it is God who takes life. It is God who has given her Samuel. It is God who has given her other children. It is God who has taken Eli's sons. It is God who is responsible for the Israelites' defeat on the battlefield. There is no other God. There is no one like the Lord. There is no one besides the Lord. He strengthens and weakens. He opens and closes the womb. He gives and takes life. And she celebrates in her song the wonderful truth that it is the Lord who exalts and humbles. That's what we have in our text, don't we? Dagon, a silly piece of stone, prostrate on the ground, missing its head, missing its hands, and unable to do anything about it as the Lord exalts himself among the Philistines. He strengthens and weakens. He opens and closes the womb. He gives and takes life. He exalts and he humbles. Why? Hannah tells us. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord. He is a great king. He is firstly an incomparable king, is he not? There is no one holy like the Lord, incomparable in majesty, incomparable in sovereignty, incomparable in power, incomparable in wisdom. He is an immortal king, a king without beginning, a king without end, a king who reigns above the succession of time. There are no principles, there are no actions, there are no causes inherent to God or external to God that cause him to change. He is the father of lights in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. He is an invisible king. He is a God who fills the heavens and the earth and yet who is not limited to the heavens and the earth. As Augustine cried centuries ago, God is in the world, yet he is not confined to it. God is out of the world, yet he is not debarred from it. God is above the world, yet he is not elevated by it. God is below the world, yet he is not depressed by it. He is invisible, a spirit who fills all things and in whom all things exist. And God is the unapproachable king. As A.W. Tozer wrote, before the uncreated fire of God's holiness, angels veil their faces. Now this text points us in that direction. Through those five stages in that close encounter between the living God and the Philistine people, we see the height of God's majesty. Thirdly, this chapter directs our attention to the extent of Christ's victory, the extent of Christ's victory. You go with me all the way back to the fall, all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, Adam and Eve rebelled, and as a result, God cursed all creation, and God cursed Adam and Eve. God cursed the serpent, the devil himself, declaring to him, I will put enmity between you, he is speaking to the devil, and the woman. Between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring, he 
will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. There you have the story of Scripture. That's the theme of the Bible. That is the theme of God's revelation, whereby he has devised a plan, the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the honoring, for the magnifying, for the glorifying of his name, to redeem for himself a people in and through and by the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who would bruise, who would crush the head of the serpent. You catch a glimpse of it. It's the story of Scripture. You catch a glimpse of it at the time of the Exodus, do you not? Why does God bother with ten plagues? In Egypt, because each of those plagues is directed to one of the gods of Egypt, and he is crushing the gods of Egypt. We see it here in our text, don't we? First Samuel 5, Dagon falls prostrate before the living God. We're going to see it later during the ministry of Elijah when he finds himself on the mount with that showdown with 400 prophets of Baal. And those 400 prophets begin to gash themselves and mutilate themselves and cry out hour after hour that Baal might send down fire from heaven. And Elijah whispers that silent prayer. And in response, the one true living God sends down fire to consume the sacrifice, consume the altar. What is God declaring? What is God doing? All of these are previews of something coming. Calvary's cross. Where at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, bruised, crushed the head of the serpent. You see, the devil, the devil's power, the devil's power is death. You understand that? He becomes the administer of God's sentence of death. He is God's appointed executioner. The power of the devil is death. The power of death is sin. What does the Lord Jesus Christ do at Calvary's cross? He makes atonement for sin, thereby removing the sting of death, thereby rendering the devil powerless. To use what we read in 1 Samuel 5, at the cross, he severs his head and he severs his hands, the seat of wisdom, the instrument of action, and there he wins a glorious victory. Satan's power is death. Let me repeat that. Death's power is sin. Praise God, Christ has atoned for sin through his death, thereby rendering Satan powerless. Fred, what what a wonderful demonstration. What a glorious revelation of the love of God. I know we we read through these chapters and we have uh, some pretty gory details. We have this death and destruction. We see a holy God. Uh, We see a holy God, a righteous God, meeting out justice, uh, pouring out judgment upon rebellious men and rebellious sinners. But friend, always keep in view the love of God. Always keep in view that these foreshadowings of wrath, these glimpses of wrath and of judgment and of justice, they all point us to Calvary's cross. They all point us to the wrath of God poured out upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross that we might be spared God's wrath, spared God's judgment, spared that sentence of death. And it's a wonderful reminder, a wonderful declaration of his love, whereby he saves us from his own judgment, 
He saves us from the devil's dominion. He saves us from the world's enmity. He saves us from our love of self. He saves us from our love of idols. He saves us from error. He saves us from fear and guilt and anxiety and estrangement. He saves us from a meaningless life. And he saves us from the consequences of the curse. The love of God poured out in Calvary's cross where Christ won a great and glorious victory. It makes Christ the Christians, the believers all in all. By his Father's appointment, Christ is the foundation stone, the cornerstone, and the top stone. He is the Father's fullness of grace and glory. Because of his love, he left a glorious crown. Because of his love, he walked in our flesh. Because of his love, he took our infirmities. Because of his love, he gave sight to the blind, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, and life to the dead. Because of his love, he was hungry, thirsty, and weary. Because of his love, he was sorrowful unto death. Because of his love, he was betrayed, arrested, and condemned. Because of his love, he was crowned with thorns, scourged with whips, and pierced with nails. Because of his love, he hung on a shameful cross, bearing our guilt and shame. Because of his love, he submitted to desertion that which we deserve for deserting God. Because of his love, he poured out his soul unto death. Because of his love, he was condemned so that we might be justified, punished so that we might be pardoned, cursed so that we might be blessed, wounded so that we might be healed, forsaken so that we might be accepted. Friend, hear this. Christ's love is not a trickling stream but a flooding river. Christ's love isn't a small puddle, but an unfathomable ocean. Christ's love isn't a flickering candle. It is a blinding sun. And we see it so clearly at Calvary's cross in the extent of his victory won for us. For the Christian, that should get the heart pumping. What an encouragement. What a source of comfort. What a source of delight. What a cause for worship. When we consider this eternal love, the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, this love so magnificently displayed at the cross and a wonderful reminder that in the shadow of the cross we find forgiveness of sin and assurance of eternal life. And friend, what a challenge this is for the unbeliever. Some of you here this morning who have never repented of your sin, never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, are still groveling prostrate before the idol of Dagon, idols still reigning free and supreme in your heart. Oh, how you must repent of your sin, how you must turn to the living God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has won and sealed a great and glorious victory. Our Father, it is our prayer this day that you might be well pleased to break hearts. It is our prayer this day that you might be well pleased to send forth your spirit in power and might. 
It is our prayer that you might impress upon hearts and minds the glory of Christ in the gospel. We know, our Father, that your word is designed to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And we do earnestly intercede on behalf of any here this day who are too comfortable in their sin and idolatry. And we pray that you might break them by your word. We pray that your spirit might convict of sin. And we pray that your spirit might point them to the cross in the great and glorious victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we do pray. Amen.